Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Welcome to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. This Sunday marks the 50th anniversary of the U.S. Bank Secrecy Act. The what, you may ask? Well, the BSA, which I have to warn you is the first in an alphabet soup of acronyms you'll hear in this episode, is one of the foundational banking statutes of the fiat currency era. Signed into law by Richard Nixon, the BSA requires financial institutions to keep records of their clients' transactions and to file reports on suspicious activity if it suggests potential money laundering, tax evasion, or other criminal activities. It defines banks' legal obligations in the realm of anti-money laundering, or AML. Courtesy of Edward Snowden, we now know a lot about the online surveillance employed by the NSA, the National Security Agency, but there's little mention in mainstream discourse of how people's lives everywhere have been impacted by the BSA and by the sprawling, ever-expanding financial surveillance system that has grown up around it. In the US, that system includes the federal agency known as FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. And in every other country, it's spearheaded by an FIU, a financial intelligence unit. Together, these bodies receive and analyze intelligence contained in suspicious activity reports, or SARS, that are delivered to them by financial intermediaries such as banks. All of this is coordinated internationally by the FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, a multilateral body that sets rules and standards for member countries. Banks can be cut off from international settlement markets if they don't comply with these rules, which is why they are compelled to follow extensive client identification practices commonly known as KYC, or Know Your Customer. This system is in place because, well, there are many, many bad guys in the world and they are all needing to move money around, which creates opportunities to catch them. The UN Office on Drugs and Crime has estimated that between $800 billion and $2 trillion is laundered by criminals every year, worth some 2.5% of global GDP. But a trove of leaked FinCEN documents last month showed banks flagging trillions of dollars of such transactions to authorities, but continuing to do business with the entities carrying them out. Their AML KYC dragnet has some huge holes in it. Meanwhile, this massive identification, tracking and reporting system imposes very real costs on the economy. It adds friction to finance, hindering people's capacity to transact, especially the billions of unbanked and underbanked who don't have the kinds of records required to get approved for such services. And as law enforcement demands have become stricter, especially after the September 11 attacks fostered new requirements to track terrorist financing, the legal burden on banks has meted many to engage in de-risking. That means shutting down relationships with institutions in smaller countries where they figured it was no longer worth the effort. It has left people all over the world paying higher costs than those of us in developed countries just to engage in transactions we take for granted. There can be no denying that AML enforcement, whether it's necessary or not, contributes to financial exclusion worldwide. 
And then there's cryptocurrencies and blockchains, which offer a very different model. Bitcoin was founded on the principle that individuals could transact with each other peer-to-peer without requiring the say-so of an intermediating institution. Without a gatekeeper, there is, in theory, no capacity or even need for KYC. Indeed, it's one reason why cryptocurrencies have been touted as a potentially low-cost way to tackle the problem of financial exclusion, albeit with mixed success so far. The lack of a gatekeeper worries law enforcement, which relies on intermediaries to do their monitoring. So amid ongoing accounts of criminals using Bitcoin, a comprehensive set of rules has been developed for entities that provide crypto services. Regulators have found that while they can't necessarily identify the actors in peer-to-peer crypto transactions, they can get exchanges, wallets, and custodians to impose KYC requirements at the on- and off-ramps to fiat currency transactions which when coupled with on-blockchain analytics gives them a decent chance to catch offenders. The FATF's new travel rule, which creates a network of cross-reporting requirements for such entities, has now turned this into a global system. Have these actions made cryptocurrencies safer for users and society? Or have they gone too far? Are they stifling innovation that could lower costs, boost inclusion, and potentially create new mechanisms for law enforcement to catch bad guys without imposing a privacy-invading surveillance regime on the rest of us? Without innovative solutions, can the crypto community offer to solve for all these competing interests? In this episode of Money Reimagined, we'll ask these and other questions of Brindley Lear, General Counsel of C-Labs, and crypto compliance expert Juan Llanos to see if we can chart a better path forward. But before we introduce them, let's welcome my co-host, Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So I know this is an issue that you're pretty passionate about. You've been involved, I think, directly and indirectly in your current role and in previous roles in some of these issues around financial exclusion and so forth. Tell me why this matters. What's at stake? You know, I want to focus on something that you mentioned earlier, which is this concept of de-risking. That term sounds fairly innocuous. I mean, who among us would not like to de-risk our lives, right? Certainly that's what we're doing as we kind of think about our COVID protocol. Um, But de-risking this innocuous term has led to significant inequity in the financial system. And I think the easiest way to kind of think about this is the practice known as redlining. I think most people are familiar with this concept that in the United States, there are certain demographic populations who have a much harder time getting access to financial services than others. And certainly after 9-11, we saw that the remittance business is one example remittances, again, are the way that immigrants, usually in the United States, send money back to their family and others back home. So that's kind of one common model of a remittance. That was started to be seen as high risk after 9-11. And so banks began to close accounts of companies that engaged in remittance. They were on remittance corridors or they engaged actively in remittance services. And they did that very proactively. And so you already saw the result of 9-11 being that certain demographic populations in the U.S were actually excluded from some of these services like transfers and other kinds of things. And that extended even to things like check cashing, for example. Disproportionately impact on the poor, on people of color, no question about that, widely documented. But what people I think know a lot less about is what's happening in the international banking sector. The 2008 crisis triggered just profound changes in the international banking sector. And so when you combine kind of the remittance hesitation, remittance hesitancy, let's call it, that many banks were engaging in uh, from remittance flow countries. So those where you know people were sending money from, those countries had a lot of reduction in some of these accounts. 
and you factor in what happened with correspondent banks in the national banking sector, you got this real crisis of really epic proportions that's led to significant changes in the world. Now, one thing I talk about a lot is, you know, who do we empower to take risk in society? And there's a reason why many founders of companies are, look a certain way or are from a certain educational background or from certain geographies, you know, et cetera. But part of the reason that we talk a lot less about is access to capital. And the reality is that in many smaller economies or, or, or small countries, it is almost impossible to get funding in a way that's going to get you a bank account. So if you're kind of bootstrapping something and you can't even get a bank account to hold money, you can't take things like VC money. You can't collect money from even friends and family to help support your endeavor. You just can't do it. The other thing I think that's really critical to note is that these KYC and AML requirements, there's a pretty clear rubric on how you do some of this stuff, but it's not consistently applied. So when you think about the fact that, let's just look at Africa as one example. There was a massive reduction in the banks that were willing to do business as correspondent banks on the continent just massive exit from the continent. What does that mean? It means exchanges get harder and more expensive, but it also means in some cases you simply just can't engage in certain kinds of financial activities. So what you saw in the charitable space as a result of some of these activities was that big multinational organizations were prioritized over small local organizations simply because of their ability to get a bank account. And it was very hard to have local coordinated response to things like crisis or disaster or you know hurricanes, whatever it might be. It's just had a profound effect in ways that we are just still beginning to unravel. I think that framing is excellent because I think what it is, is this this concept of like a Damocles sword that hangs over the bankers. It's like, you know, I'm not going to tell you, is this really right or wrong, but it might be, in which case you could get slapped with a fine. What was it? HSBC got fined $1.9 billion or something for their money laundering offenses with Mexico. So that hangs everybody's heads. Like, all right, so what's, what's the safest thing to do is to say no. So find anything that looks marginally risky and say no. And the first things they go to are these developing countries, these poorer settings that don't have the same level of infrastructure around identity. One of the moments where this came home to me, I was on a panel and we were discussing some of these issues and somebody from FinCEN was actually on the panel. And a question was put to the audience because basically the US Treasury had declared Somalia to be such a a high-risk jurisdiction that they basically cut down the entire corridor of funds to Somalia. And the question was put to the panel about, you know, what is the implications of this? What happens to Somalians when this happens, when the remittance flow just dries up like that? And Elizabeth Rossiello, who many people in the space would know, but then with BitPacer, came out and said, they starve. Pretty frank, the people starve. And you thought about this, the reason why they'd shut down the corridor was because there'd been an outbreak of terrorist activity in the region, and it was just considered way too risky that money could get into the hands of the terrorists. But if you're going to starve the population to do that, it seems to me that you're creating essentially the exact right conditions for those terrorists to come in and recruit them. There is a horrible irony to it, yes. There is an enormous misplacement of priorities as far as I'm concerned. And I, and I think that there's just not enough awareness because everybody says, hey, money laundering is bad. These guys are criminals surely we can't enable that, right? And that's perfectly understandable. It's pretty hard to imagine otherwise. But the second order effects are so so profound. I want to throw this out there. This is a controversial position that, well, it's simply controversial because no one ever adopts it in serious policymaking. But, <laughs> but, but it's just a way to frame the discussion more than anything else. And that is to suggest that money laundering is not a crime, that it is an outcome of crimes. There's a notion that says the freedom to exchange 
The freedom to transact is something that should be protected regardless because of the fact that there are people on both sides of this, that it is ultimately something that needs to be kept open. The crime is the drug trafficking, the arms trafficking, the terrorism, whatever. I get it that obviously, you know, money laundering, if you focus on it, is a way to catch bad guys. And that's really important. And trust me, in conversations I've had with any officials around this, they just sort of shut the door on you. But it is important because at the end of the day, the second round effects of all of these regulations ultimately restrict transactions. They make it impossible for people to engage in normal financial transactions with each other. And that is a huge problem. So that's the framing for this conversation. Why don't we bring in Brindley Lear from C-Labs? Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hey, Brindley. I would love to just start off by you telling us a bit about you know, what you're working on, what C-Labs is up to these days, just respond to some of the things that you've heard us chatting about today. I love the topic. I think remittance transfers, they're so, so important to many of our communities around the world. One of the latest statistics I saw for the World Bank, $554 billion in remittance transfers in 2019. So it's a big part of our global economy and really, really important to some countries. I think in what you've outlined, when you talk about de-risking, it disproportionately affects different jurisdictions. So C-Labs is one of the many companies working on and building on, I would call it a second generation blockchain, Celo. And I call it the second generation blockchain because I think now, now that we're a decade plus past Bitcoin and slightly less than that for Ether, we can really start diving into how this technology can actually be used and how we can make the world a better place using this technology. So when we think back of the promise of Bitcoin, like you talked about, Michael, the promise of Bitcoin, right? Being able to connect with peer-to-peer payments, people across the world without having to go through the banking system that may or may not be available to you. What's interesting is if that technology is already here, why aren't we seeing it adopted in places in Africa? Now we are, but why aren't we seeing it readily adopted? And I would say the reasons are probably threefold. One, the systems are really, really complex. So if you're engaging with blockchains today, it isn't for the usual person, right? You have to keep track of this long hash. You have to keep track of security codes. It just isn't accessible. And then also you have this really volatile asset. So you're not going to use probably a Bitcoin to well, we saw this with buying a pizza, you're probably not going to use it in your day-to-day life because the price is so volatile and you don't know when the transaction is going to be over. So for instance, if I'm buying a coffee from you and I'm using Bitcoin, one, that transaction may not close for 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. And I'm not sure how much that coffee would have cost until we have that transaction finalized. And that seems like a fairly strange mismatch for day-to-day life. So when you have this second generation of blockchains like Celo, it is adopted for mobile phones. So most people in the world, there's about 6 billion mobile phones in the world today. And what you can find is if you have an ultralight type of blockchain that can float on an inexpensive Android phone, now you're finally opening the door to real financial inclusion. We know that 1.7 billion adults are unbanked today with 6 billion smartphones. The overlap is really substantial. So Brinley, so you, you mentioned volatility, but of course there are some crypto assets that are, are not hugely volatile that are actually 
backed by fiat. So can you speak a little bit about how stablecoin fits into your view of the world? Sure. So I think there are, I mean, there are many different types of classes of assets. One type of asset may be volatile. It's the asset that helps you engage with the blockchain, and that's what enables it to be decentralized. But then you can have a stable asset. So USDC or some other stable asset, this is more to be used as a medium of exchange. If you're transacting and buying real things in the real world, you want to know that your asset, your currency is stable. And so once you can open the door to access to those types of stable coins through a blockchain to deliver that experience to people around the world, then you can really have an interesting new financial system, basically. I take it this is a fairly early stage operation. Let's shift this nonetheless to your perspective as you've been going through this process of developing this as a general counsel, where you've got to think about these laws. If you're trying to move this technology, these apps, these applications into all of these different locations around the world, how do you deal with the, the question of KYC, AML, and so forth? Because clearly every crypto exchange now that wants to be kind of upfront legitimate is having to deal with these issues. What are you dealing with and how are you confronting the kind of barriers that we talked about in the intro? I think first off, having regulation is, is just not a bad thing. I mean, this is what helps keep consumers safe. It helps keep markets active. Like we want regulation in the space. And so I don't take an approach that this is a new technology and therefore we don't need to worry about laws. It is somewhat of a patchwork, depending on where you're going to roll out a product somewhere in the world, you're going to have to work within those regulations. But I think it's all possible. And I think part of how we illustrate this is what's actually happening today and how you can use this technology today. That's actually an interesting segue for bringing Juan in here. And, and I'm just going to sort of preface this, Juan, because you and I worked briefly on a project that unfortunately had to uh, be shelved. It was trying to grapple with some of these possibilities. I'll get you to introduce how you got into this space as well, but I just want to frame it in these terms. And that is that this project was to deal with undocumented immigrants in the United States from Mexico. I was at MIT's Digital Currency Initiative, and there was this possibility that the Mexican government would cooperate with us. And what we were trying to do was to say, what if we used a really sort of basic system of identifying these guys? maybe issued by their consulate that may not have actually been readily accepted by banks easily. But then if we could establish that core identifier and then use that, so it's a non-identifying, it's non-PII, it's not personal identifying information, as some system to then let these folks enter into a remittance arrangement, the way that you would manage that from an AML perspective would be to trace the movements over a blockchain and then discover where the risky nodes were and act upon those on that basis rather than bogging through the entry points with this identification process. Donald Trump was then elected and it really wasn't a good time for the Mexican government to be helping work with undocumented immigrants. So it kind of moved on. But nonetheless, to, to me, there was this real potential and I'd like you to dive in, Juan, because you've been sitting there in the wings of how we can actually use this technology. It's not necessarily a threat. It's an opportunity to lessen the burden on identification, but at the same time, potentially manage the risks uh, to the system. Absolutely. Thank you first for having me. It's great to be here. 
And yeah, so I think you touch on it. I mean, all of the comments you've made so far are very interesting and I'm going to touch on them briefly, but I just want to tell you how I got into this space. I happen to be, I would say, in the right place at the right time. And that's not really positive because I was waiting in London for a job opportunity in New York at the end of 2001 after leaving Argentina. And uh, Mike, you know very well what happened in 2001 and the reason I left my country. And it has to do with hyperinflation and the lack of opportunity. And I say that because it's, it's rooted in the work I do today and what launched my career in financial services and compliance. It's amazing how many Argentines are involved in this space. Yeah. The thing is that, you know, September 11 happens, obviously. And then a month later, the USA Patriot Act and I get a call from New York City from a Hispanic money transmitter in northern Manhattan, invite me to be a compliance officer because this new set of rules now is already applicable to banks for a long time, is now applicable to non-bank financial institutions such as money transmitters and MSBs. And I take the job and I basically join the company and start doing compliance when uh, toxic fumes were still billowing from ground zero. And that guided my career was the moment I cut my teeth in financial services and understood banking and segments and underprivileged and underserviced segments. So I started building the compliance programs, right, as a neophyte, completely outside from the, you know, of, of the world of, of compliance and, and the law. And I came as a MBA graduate from Argentina, an expat, right? And I took it as a problem to be solved. That's how I started approaching compliance. And this basically marked the way I work even today, right? Problem solving, which later on I found out is called product development or product design, right? More recently. So I joined this company. I got to know the segment. The industry was retail financial services. So we had brick and mortar money transmitter agents scattered across the United States. We had the big, big challenge of collecting cash, right? From immigrants, most of them undocumented and we had the problem of identifying people that were not documented on the send side and then delivering funds converted into local currency into jurisdictions that were very also unsophisticated, I would say, in terms of uh, infrastructure and banking. And so we had to basically create a supply chain of cash management that involved not only the actual movement of money and the conversion of money and treasury and all that, but also complying on multiple parts of the world with multiple layers of regulation. One of them was the AML-CFT regime uh, that is the subject of this conversation, so the Bank Secrecy Act. The first thing that impacted me was that the identity standard for the world, actually, and not only for the United States, was the fact that you needed a piece of identification or a method of identification that had four components. First of all, unexpired, government-issued, photo, identity document. So it had to be a document issued by a government. It had to have a photo and later on another form of biometric identifier. And it had to be unexpired, valid. So with those constraints, it's very hard to identify people. And there's many reasons for that, because uh, you know, not everyone has a government-issued ID. Not all countries in the world are able to issue government IDs. I was talking to a Nigerian colleague uh, working on a project in Africa, and he was telling me that it takes seven years for a Nigerian to get a government-issued ID. Seven years for a citizen. So they're given a temporary uh, ID 
which is a slip of paper that you can you know, fold and, and carry in your pocket. And so the traditional identity systems for e-commerce, which rely on government databases or imaging technology and optical character recognition and all these fancy things do not work in a third of the world. What I'm telling you is what was happening in the pre-web services era when computers were just, uh, you know, networks were emerging and we were transferring files on FTP and there were no APIs and everything. So I, I usually describe my work as three uh, moments or three epochs. One was the MSB situation post 9-11, which is difficult and had to face the unbanking, the risking problem also uh, globally. Then we had prepaid cards. Another second technology that emerged and we launched uh, prepaid cards and they were also controversial because some of them were anonymous. And number three is the third epoch basically is when I discovered Bitcoin in 2012. And I see that having done compliance for such a long time before encountering Bitcoin, I said, okay, this is a value transfer mechanism. This is a monetary equivalent. This is a substitute for currency. All these phrases that are embedded in regulation. And so I said, this is going to be regulated as money. So that means that the federal regime for anti-money laundering will be applied to it and also probably money transmission. That is how I got into this world because I had been a compliance officer for a long time. I decided to focus on a portfolio approach and try to help as many innovators as possible. And I've been on and off taking jobs or permanent roles on and off, but mostly I've been helping companies such as BitParos, Repo, BitWage, BitReserve, Binance, etc. But one of the interesting approaches that you've taken is not just to say, I'm going to come in and sort of act like a lawyer here and say, here are the rules that you have to comply with, but to think creatively around how you can see it not as a problem from a legal perspective, but also a technology that can be used to solve some of the problems. Where do you see and locate, and I take it we need regulators to be open to these ideas, unfortunately, but nonetheless, where do you see opportunities for cryptocurrencies, for blockchain to find the solution within this difficult challenge of uh, surveillance? The big problem here is, and Brindley was touching on it when describing the blockchain, the thing now is that we have a completely different paradigm. The whole purpose of the BSA and anti-mine laundering regulations and the, the principles that emerge from the Financial Action Task Force are intended to deter and detect money laundering. Basically, it's a preventative and an investigative regime, mostly based on reporting. And the whole purpose of it, and I usually describe it in these layman's terms, is to basically make people arrestable and make funds seizable. Those are the two things, you know, the principles behind all these frameworks, right? So there's anonymity, therefore, is anathema, right? Because if you have anonymity, you cannot identify the potential culprit. You cannot basically enforce sanctions, which require identifiers, geographical identifiers. So anonymity is not allowed in financial services in the current paradigm. But the difference is that we, so we needed to have this, this visibility into the ownership of transactions and ownership of assets. The challenge back then, as Brindley correctly explained, was that there was no visibility into the transactional activity. So that had to be collected via a deputization methodology, basically. So the government would appoint these financial intermediaries, obligated entities, as they're called, obliged entities in the European nomenclature, so to basically act as uh, policemen. 
And that is why we have this mandatory surveillance uh, for transactional activity in all financial services. The problem now with blockchain is radical transparency. We have these networks that are accessible to anyone. So you have full visibility of transactions, not only intra-company or intra-network, but also inter-network or internationally and across borders and geographies. So we have an excessive amount of visibility into transactions, which, by the way, is very positive for law enforcement, right? Because of the irrevocability of evidence, right? You have evidence that is there. It's a digital footprint that never goes away. So it's really good for evidence collection. The challenge that now law enforcement has is identifying the owners of the assets. And so anonymity and obfuscation and all of these privacy-preserving techniques are concerning. And as you can see, if you've been following the news, which I know you have, (laughs) encryption is under attack as well, right? So we have this clash or this tug of war between different policy objectives. And if the policy objective of preventing crime or deterring crime it prevails over other policy objectives like financial inclusion and uh, access to options, optional financial systems, alternative products, or even highly prudential systems where you cannot take uh, risks, you cannot offer different things to different segments, like, uh, for example, the qualified investor regime in the US. You know, only elites have access to certain investments. Well, all this is going in a way is being attacked by these blockchains and the ease with which these alternative systems are being created and products are being created. So to me, there is a big problem here, and I'm very happy that you guys are addressing this. Uh, This is the first time I have the opportunity to participate in a deep conversation about this in a massive uh, form of media. So it's very interesting. I've been a researcher uh, of all these things for years. And uh, you and I know Mike, uh, Louis de Coker, you know, an Australian scholar working in South Africa, uh, people that have worked with uh, a media network also trying to create standards for ID and a group called Consultative Group to Assist the Poor, CGAP. The incredible work being done by Dr. Klippinger and uh, David Bollier and Alex Pentland of MIT, all, all these people have been trying to address the challenges of reconciling uh, radical transparency with civil liberties. And I think there is a connection here that needs to be made, which is the connection between the AML regime and taxes and and the fiscal policy and tax collection, the fight against tax avoidance and evasion. So these are very important things. And as a uh, factoid of color, the Financial Action Task Force sits in the same building as the OECD in Paris. Uh, So there's a reason for that, right? And another thing that few people know is that the enforcement arm or the investigative arm of the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network in the U.S. is the IRS. So it's the Internal Revenue Service that comes and examines you as a regulated entity. And they deliver the evidence and collect the evidence, give it to the enforcement, and then Obviously, FinCEN then will act uh, based on the evidence, right? Whether you're breaking the law or not. But I suppose that they come with one eye looking at your AML program and the other eye looking at your tax compliance. Yeah. Well, you know, it's that famous story that what took down Capone was actually the tax evasion and tax avoidance and tax fraud there. It wasn't actually the murder and the mayhem and the whatnot. And the Treasury Department, you know, had a key role in that. And so I do think that people underestimate 
what financial crimes are used as, as a hook or lever, kind of to Michael's earlier point, you know, the activity that that actually can address, even if it's indirect. But one thing you know, I, I want to comment on is it's this notion of who is surveilling whom. And so I think we can't get away from the outsized role of the United States in the setup of these systems. Certainly things like you know, the Patriot Act and, and responses to 9-11 you know, really were directly causally related to some of this de-risking activity we've been talking about. And when you talk to kind of the FBI or the DOJ, you know, Katie Hahn used to be at the DOJ, it isn't so much that it's hard to trace some of this. I mean, they did at the end of the day, right? Like Silk Road 2, the second version of Silk Road was broken up. You know, I tell the story famously, like a few blocks from my, from my apartment because they were able to track who these people were through other kinds of things that were happening around the space and the activity they were engaging in that were indicators of who might and localizing where this activity might actually be happening. And then, you know, engaging in extensive literal physical surveillance of different individuals to figure out who might be responsible. But I think that when you step up a level, the United States has this police almost role that is not really understood uh, to the extent that I think it could be by those who aren't deeply familiar with the space. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about the Bank Secrecy Act as a little bit of a lever for that. And um, maybe, Bradley, you can walk us through a little of that history and where it stands today. So it is very much active, even though we don't talk about it. I mean, as you talked about before, with banks and financial systems, there are very heavy requirements to know your customers, to do transaction monitoring. All of this is happening. And I think if you look at the banks, they spend quite a lot of money and resources into this compliance aspect. Here where I think it's so interesting is blockchain really opens up a different way to transact, right? We talked about financial inclusion. It really opens up this different way to transact. And if you think back to the BSA, so it's 1970, that whole law is challenged. It goes up to the Supreme Court a few years later and when the Supreme Court is looking at this law, the BSA, it's challenged on First Amendment grounds and Fourth Amendment grounds and Fifth Amendment grounds. But when they look at it, I mean, here they say, well, the banking system is not transparent. We do not have information about what's happening. We're very concerned about tax evasion. We're very concerned about Swiss bank accounts. And we need to do something. And so the BSA seemed like a fine way to balance who has the information, the banks, with the need, right? We needed to get in ahead of tax evasion. So here, when we fast forward, BSA has not gone away. And yet with blockchain, we have this new scenario. I mean, we go back to that fundamental question. We needed the BSA because we didn't otherwise have information. And now we actually have the information. If you're transacting on a blockchain, much of that is exposed. And so you can look at patterns and you can see activity that you may want to ask questions about. You can follow that to a digital asset exchange, send a subpoena to that exchange. But we don't have that lack of transparency that even got us into the BSA if now you're looking at public blockchains. I'd also like to go back to just something that Juan was talking about, and that is, if we really were going to get concrete, is this the system that really works in a way that promotes prosperity in our world? I mean, yes, money laundering is very serious. Tax evasion is very serious. But when we look at the remittance markets and the folks that are really relying on this, I mean, you go to the Philippines and a daily minimum wage is $10. So if we're talking about these remittance transfers of $50 and $100, I 
to folks that are deeply in need. Is this really what we want our system to be cracking down on? Is this really the best use of our resources? Let's really talk about the BSA and this notion of civil liberties. So how do we think through uh, Fourth Amendment, you know, Fifth Amendment, some of these considerations, and, and what have the courts said, or what is our current thinking on this? Because it has really global implications. It really has global implications. And I think here, it's been around for 50 years, and we don't even really go to the foundation to question it at this point. I mean, we should probably, but we don't. I mean, that's, I think, the sad reality is that it's done. We just assume that it is. It's an axiom at this point that we have. Exactly. And that's a very unsatisfying answer. And maybe we want to talk more about that just as a group. But I think that is the reality. We don't even question the BSA in terms of Fourth Amendment. What I think is really interesting is, you know, going back to that foundation of it, now that we do have this visibility into transactions, maybe we have a different system as it applies to more open systems like transactions on a blockchain. Maybe BSA isn't what we apply to those other programs, those other technologies that are more open. But I don't think we're having actively that debate. So we take it for granted that this system, this kind of regulatory environment is the foundation for everything that we're really doing without even really acknowledging how fundamental it is to the entire international banking sector, not even just that in the United States. That's exactly right. I agree with that. And I think that it's a question of public policy priority. The Northern Hemisphere in general doesn't feel the pain and the problems that the Southern Hemisphere of the world has. So when you are asked for an ID or when you're asked to fill out a 15-page form, just do it. You open the account. You have the information. Just, it's, of course, it's a pain in the neck. And now there's a lot of technology that pre-fill the forms and that tap databases and collect that and, and do it for you. But the problem is that this is not the same situation elsewhere in the world. And right now, the, it seems as though national security and the prevention of financial crime and obviously tax avoidance and tax evasion are the top policy priorities. And if that continues to be the case, there's going to be little room for innovation, for change, for the search for alternative systems for identity. There's a lot of research that has been done on, on these things and the issues, the unintended consequences of a strong AML regime enforcement and a heavy hand of enforcement. But I haven't seen progress. And I read a lot what's going on in the state of the art, and, and I don't see much progress. To that point, I mean, I think we can also take a look widely on how effective the current policies are. I think, Michael, you pointed out at the very beginning that according to the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime, we're looking at a problem of $800 billion to $2 trillion. But then when you look at enforcement actions, even though those enforcement actions have gone up substantially, looking through 2019, it's somewhere around $10 billion. So we have enforcement actions that are touching maybe $10 billion of an $800 billion problem. This is an opportunity to think about a different way to address it. Yeah, the gaps in all of that. It's, it's also the counterfactual, right? What, what's actually being missed is huge. It's sort of incredible that you can stand up these numbers and say, look how much crime there is out there. But at the other time, it's like, well, how much is it being missed? And I, I just can't help to think that this has just become a kind of a leviathan of its own creation that ultimately exists because it exists layers upon layers of system. Ultimately, though, these kinds of things break. And when they do, there's an enormous amount of harm that comes from them. But they're basically 
they are regimes, just as communism was a regime. Again, I'm, I'm saying somewhat dramatic words because people wouldn't equate this with communism, but they are systems that ultimately break. The thing that's interesting is how this conversation has gone and focused on the role of the United States, because it is a unique role the US has because of the fact that the dollar is the world's reserve currency, and everybody, therefore, every other bank in the world has to have a relationship with the US correspondent bank. It gives not only the US huge power as a gatekeeper, but New York, because so many of those banks, for the historical reasons of Wall Street, are based in New York. So the New York Department of Financial Services and other entities, the New York uh, Attorney General's Office and so forth, have played a large role in dictating what happens with banks and other financial institutions precisely because of this gatekeeping role that the US has. Now, people who've followed Money Reimagined, the newsletter, but also some of our conversations on the podcast will know that I tend to think that this system is not going to last that eventually the US dollar reserve status will also fall, which of course is possibly means there's bigger problems than all this to deal with. But ultimately, with China pushing for its digital currency and some serious concerns about US leadership in the world, some of these things are going to go away. Yeah, I just want to ask actually when I ask a question of Juan on it, because you know, you talked about the FATF and the role of that it plays it's connected to the OECD. Is there anything detectable within the G7, the other large, wealthy, industrialized countries that suggest there's some concern about US domination through this process and whether that would be a trigger for some of the changes? Well, I, I cannot tell what's going on within the G7, but let me go back to a couple of points you made that are interesting. The fact that a system that optimizes for everything becomes brittle. And if you push hard, it breaks, right? And that is what may happen to a system such as this. And this is why I've been researching people like Tim O'Reilly and Nick Savo, Vinay Gupta, people that have spoken about the transformation that technology enables. Obviously, the blockchain has been the excuse to have these conversations. And you know the fact that we are talking about OFAC and these uh, multi-ABC uh, acronyms here everywhere. So that means that this is a conversation that was unthinkable 10 years ago or 15 years ago when I started. So this was very, very closely knit, closely held. And But now the conversation is opening and we're looking at the impact and trying to measure the impact and the proportion of the enforcement. So these are things that now we, with technology and with data tracking and we are able to measure the impact, the results and the unintended consequences. And the thing we, we have to make the systems, uh, as I wrote last week when I commented on the BitMEX case, there's a principle in design that is that in order to optimize the system, to attain the most positive output, uh, we have to sub-optimize the subsystems. So that means that we may have to learn to live with a little money laundering, right? We may have to learn to live with the risk that someone in Somalia might be a criminal uh, trying to get through the cracks. But when you press hard and when you blanket uh, decisions and when you are overzealous in your enforcement, you have a lot of problems. And in terms of taxation, and you asked me earlier about opportunities for innovation, right, with this new technology. When I joined Consensus a few years ago, and started the reg tech practice, you know, the conversation about applying automation and robotizing systems inspired by smart contracts. I think the, the holy grail, I came up with these two things that need to happen to alter the system, right? If you cannot make the aircraft carrier of the United States turn fast, what we can do is learn to adapt to the regulation and to the compliance side of the regulation 
to the industry side of the API, if you were right. The two things that are needed for things to change are number one, digital information sharing systems like the ones you envisioned for that Mexican project that you described earlier, right? Not having to move around PII or store PII in insecure databases. Why not have an information sharing system where what travels is an alias, right? What, what travels across the network is not the real identity of people. And this is why self-sovereign identity as a concept and as a design, as an architecture is so interesting, right? There's a lot of research going on about that. And the second thing that needs to happen to be able to help law enforcement track criminals and leverage the incredible amount of data that is created by these networks is transaction analysis on encrypted data. Because today, transaction analysis is conducted on open text, right? It's an open field. The transactions are open. They need to be open for us to be able to measure them, uh, to track volume and value. But what if we could do transaction monitoring on a zero-knowledge basis, right? And there's another, another important project that I've been in touch with called Enigma. And they're working on these types of technology. And I think that the future, if we cannot change regulation, if it's impossible, it has become this huge mammoth uh, leviathan. The option is to basically try to create alternative ways of complying with the regulation and to try to meet various policy objectives uh, with technology. So I think there's no question, we've clearly seen that the outsized role the U.S. has had in this. And what I think we are grossly underestimating is what's going to happen when China really rolls out the Yuan. Because China has, of course, been making investments all over the world and, and engaging in all kinds of very intense uh, transaction investment activity. And I think that we're going to soon see China also exporting some of these principles and policies and the, the ways that it's thinking about surveillance, the ways that it's thinking about some of the things like the equivalents of the BSA that are the Chinese equivalents of that, that are going to similarly become the foundational basis for a lot of activity. And I'm really going to be curious and keeping a, a close eye on that because I think it's going to happen and we're not paying enough attention to it. But Brindley, I would love to get your thoughts. Um, we know that the Chinese government and companies have been making tremendous investments all over sub-Saharan Africa. And I know that C-Labs and Cello work a lot there. So I'd love to get your comments on how you're seeing some of this develop on the continent. And I think your point is a really, really good one. Do we want to live in a world where there is more surveillance than what we would feel comfortable with. I mean, that is that is really uncomfortable for, I think, many of us. So in terms of what's happening in Africa and the Philippines, I mean, here, and this goes back to something I said earlier about the second wave of blockchain and how we can actually use it to do some good in the world. We just recently rolled out a program with Grameen in the Philippines. Uh, it's not Africa. But I can talk about that in a moment. But with Grameen in the Philippines to deliver financial aid in this time of COVID through a blockchain cryptocurrency to 733 women, mostly mothers, who really had not a lot of experience with, in fact, no, no experience with cryptocurrency, but also uh, very limited experience with any kind of financial apps on their phone. So we've talked about such big topics here. We've talked about AML and BSA and de-risking and this leviathan of our banking and compliance system, here's the reality is that we do live with a lot of money laundering. That is the reality today. But the problem is that is not born equally by all of us in the world, right? I mean, we live with money laundering and it's not punishing folks in the US as much as it is, is, is punishing folks in Africa and the Philippines. 
Alrighty, well, that's all we have time for for now. But that was a fascinating conversation. I felt like we could have kept going and going. Lots of new rabbit holes opened up to explore zero knowledge proofs and a whole host of other things that this very big topic inevitably opens up. So let us just say thanks to Brindley Lear from C-Labs and Juan Llanos so much for the time that you spent. And as always, Sheila Warren, thank you very, very much for joining me again. Make sure you tune in for the next episode of Coindesk's Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Thanks for joining us. Bye. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Michael J. Casey, Sheila Warren, Brinley Lear, and Juan Llanos. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was produced and announced by Adam B. Levine, with editing by Rob Mitchell and assistance from Lila Ledesma. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of Money Reimagined, plus more insightful shows on the Coindesk Reports subscriber feed.